Welcome to Make It Count, Living a Legacy Life, where we invest in what matters, God and people. I'm Sue Donaldson, speaker, author, and creator of WelcomeHeart.com, where you can learn to know and show the heart of God. And that's what counts. Thank you for joining me. Hello. I'm so happy today to introduce you to my new friend, Michaela O'Donnell. Is that right? And she's from the LA Pasadena area and she works for Fuller Seminary. And uh, if you could just explain what the Max Dupree Center for Leadership is, because she, did you find, found it or you just run it? No, I did not found it. I just run it. Sue, it's good to be with you. Um, Thanks Thanks for having me on today. The Max Dupree Center for Leadership is named after, you guessed it, Max Max. Dupree. Yes, (laughs) he was the the longtime CEO of Herman Miller, which is an office furniture company. I'm actually sitting in one of their chairs right now, the Aeron chair. And he was also a longtime board member of Fuller. So he was somebody who people describe as having a seamless life. He was, you know, the same person in the boardroom as he was in on, you know, in his CEO role, as he was with his employees, as he was with his family. So a big part of what we do is try to help people have that same kind of integration between faith and work and the rest of their life, wherever God has called them in terms of work and leadership. And tell me his name again, Herman. The company is called Herman Miller. Some okay. of the most famous designers that worked there were Charles and Ray Eames. You can, they're sort of a cult wow. following um, behind them. Really quality, quality furniture that is comfortable to sit in and beautiful to look at. I love the idea of seamless, living seamless. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can explore that a little bit more as we go on. You're also described as an entrepreneur and a practical theologian. Now, in contrast to an impractical theologian, um, is there even a place for an impractical theologian? Is they are they just the researchers? They're head in the clouds, or does God love them as much as they love you, or what? Yeah, no, I, I don't think I should say that God doesn't love anybody as much as me. I might be getting into trouble. I might uh, <laughs> not like how that one turns out. So, no. practical practical theology is a whole discipline that sits sort of next to systematic theology, which oh. sits next to biblical theology. And each of them have their own. It's really about where do you start? So biblical theologians, oh. they start with the Bible every time. Systematic, and all the starting points are good. Let me say that too. Systematic theologians, they start with what are the big ideas that the Christian faith holds, right? What do we think about Christ and about salvation and et cetera? Practical theologians start with what's going on in the world right now? And how might faith speak into it? So mm-hmm. I, that's what I mean by practical theology. And that's what the discipline um, is intended to do. So it's really a real thing. Because I've heard of systematic theology. Yeah. And what was that other one? Biblical the- theology. Biblical theology. Yeah. Isn't it all biblical? Yes. Yes. Um, but I would call myself one now. I'm going to call myself. I'm a, what am oh, I? Please I'm do. A, I'm a practical theologian. Welcome because- to the club, Sue. We're glad to have you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to work on a doctorate though. Um, but yeah, because the whole thing is bringing Jesus into real life. Yeah. Now, because he's here, people just yeah. don't know. And yeah. so when I have wine nights and invite my friends over and we do conversation starters, that's practical theology. I have to tell you, I have a friend who I met at the thrift store because we kept shopping there and she came and now she tells everybody she's going to her Bible study. 
And all it is, is we sit and we just share when we share life together and it's actually a wine night. And I try not to laugh too hard, but she goes, oh, I only come. She doesn't believe in God. She doesn't believe in God. So I kind of feel like we're doing practical theology, though my mother wouldn't approve, but she's in heaven drinking the real stuff. So (laughs) let's go back to you. Um, I did ask you that question. Explain the difference between a calling. Well, first of all, let's just say the name of your book because it is amazing. And you do remind me a little bit of Jordan Rayner, Make Work Matter, Your Guide to Meaningful Work in a Changing World. What a beautiful, beautiful title. I have so many questions. How long did it take you to write it? Yeah. How long did it take you? Oh, good question. Well, it's a a two-part thing. So this, the the what's in here was actually the basis of what I studied when I was getting my doctorate. Okay. But you might imagine that there are not many people, including myself, who want to spend time reading dissertations in depth. Right. (laughs) This is too much. And not as practical as even my discipline would say uh, that we need. So converting and finding new stories and interweaving my own life journey as an entrepreneur in with it, mm-hmm. that took the better part of you know a year and a half um, to, to have the version that we can hold in our hands now. Okay. And um, why? what is the difference between a calling or a vocation and a job? I was talking to my sister the other day and she's a Lutheran pastor's wife. And she goes, you know, Sue, we talk a lot about vocation in the Lutheran world. Well, I didn't know that, but I think I do too, because, Mm -hmm. but I'd like to know your interpretation of a vocation or calling versus a job. That's such a good question. I think it's a question a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. And ironically, or maybe providentially, I think Martin Luther did mm-hmm. some really interesting work on this. So Martin Luther, I'll give you the sort of, I'll give you the practical, digestible version of Thank Luther you. here. Yes. So Martin Luther was in a time period where people were talking about spiritual work as the work that priests and nuns and mm-hmm. monks did. And Martin Luther was like, wait a minute, what about the priesthood of all believers? What about the what about the whole kingdom of God? What about the baker or the candlestick maker or the mother or father? And uh, really, he and his contemporaries in the Reformation said, actually, all work can be spiritual. Okay, but Sue, stay with me here. So then okay. what happened is people, so then he's writing in kind of an agrarian, farming, localized age. Then society started to move from farming to an industrial age, eventually to kind of what we're in right now. You know, we're talking over computers in information age. And that idea of calling kind of kept going with it. But instead of expanding to be contextualized in each of those ages, somewhere along the way, we started thinking about calling as a job we love, right? And calling... Mm is not actually, that's not actually a biblical understanding of calling. Calling is much more, um, well, it's much more liberating than that, actually. The very core, what calling means, I think about uh, Jesus first calling his disciples on on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he's like, hey, y'all, follow me, Mm -hmm. right? Follow me, this core belonging and this central thing. And, And yeah, God does then call people to particulars, to, to friendships and to places and yeah, sometimes to jobs and roles, but job and vocation are not, are not synonymous. It's a context 
in which we live out this larger sense of belonging to God and being a follower of Christ, but it's one of many contexts. I'll stop there. That was quite the history lesson. Yeah, no, it was great. And it was interesting that you mentioned Luther because I'm sure that's where they got it. And yep. um, and I wonder when the breakdown went. I think in every age, people start living for themselves and for the bottom line, which is the dollar mm-hmm. or for pride. And so then they get away from really the main calling that God calls us to, which is to deny ourselves and to love him and others. Mm. Do you see? Do you differentiate between the words calling and vocation? Are you using them interchangeably? They're pretty interchangeable. Okay. I mean, right. the word vocation is a Latin word that you know basically means to be called. Oh, and okay. so, and so the, and, and sometimes in English, when we use the word vocation, we think about people who have ministry positions. And I, I think that that, that divide has actually been, I still talk to a lot of people where they think, oh, my, my work isn't as spiritual or as I don't yours. even know how God, yeah, as, right. as yours. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm like, wait a minute, let's go all the way back mm-hmm. and all the way back forward. So those, those words really have the same, same root meaning. Well, I can see, thank you for answering that. I can see how we might put people who are professional Christians, you know, they get paid for being a preacher or a professor at a Christian university like yourself or a seminary, um, put them up on a pedestal because for one thing, they're usually up, you know, they are actually literally on a stage. Literally, yeah. And so you're looking up to them and of course they fall farther and it hurts more when they do, which is a whole nother story. Amen. But um, I can see that because Jesus called plain ordinary men out of a plain ordinary profession, which was fishing. And he called them to go be fishers of men. So you can see why people could confuse that. And yet um, what he was doing was just getting his followers to go spread the good news all over the world, because that's what happened as a result of them being obedient to that. Um, is it important as a believer, does it really matter what job we have or work we do? Does it really matter? That's a really good question. Does it really matter? I mean, I think that there are lots of factors in here, right? We, most of us have bills we have to pay. Some of us have kids we have to take care of. Um, uh, We have, the way that society works, one needs money to be able to function. And so I think it would be unwise and unfair to swing the pendulum all the way to say, hey, everything we do for work has to matter in its most extreme sense to us all the time. I actually think that's a um, a narrow percent of the population can think like that. Not everybody has, um, I'll use the word privilege to just think about that, right? Because we've got these mm-hmm. things that we're paying for. Um, now, let me say this. Do I think that I'll say every, sure, we could maybe make some exceptions, but do I think any place that God has us is an opportunity for meaningful work? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because I think, it, you know, it, most of us are, call, we're, we're, as, as believers, we're called into that belonging, into that followership, which often takes the shape of little opportunities to uplift each other, little opportunities to sow goodness into something that feels broken, mm-hmm. little opportunities to push the margins on systems that work for some and not for others. And so I think there is opportunity for meaningful work 
almost anywhere we find ourselves. Now I'll add one more thing there. That's not meant as a way to say, no matter where you are, you should just stay there. Sometimes I think there are very, very reasonable reasons for leaving. And sometimes I think God invites us into newness and sometimes more fullness as a part of you know our next step and, and I'll say walk with God. But I think there's opportunity for meaning almost anywhere we find ourselves. I totally agree. When I got married, I got married out of being a full-time missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And um, because my husband wasn't a member, then I left the organization. And I was fine with that. But I had a friend say, I'm so sorry you got married because you always wanted to be a full-time missionary. <laughs> mm. I was so surprised because she knew I wanted to get married and I was 35. And I said, oh, well, you know what? People in San Luis Obispo need Jesus. That's all I said, <laughs> you know, yep. but it kind of startled me because it wasn't her fault. That was her view of me. You know, we have perspectives right. of people and that's what she thought. I was grieving that. I go, oh no, um, it's just a different place. It's like God places. God has moved. It's interesting you brought that thing about sometimes yeah. we do need to move. God has moved me into different jobs or vocations even um, through boredom. Like I've got, mm-hmm. it wasn't a real big wow. spiritual reason. I go, I need a change. And I think God, you know, he made me who someone who needs change. So then he uses that to get me into another place. And that's where he wants to fulfill his calling through me. Not that I want to talk about me, but I think it's okay to go ahead and and move out of a different reason, not just because you had this great, you know, uh, vision from the Lord or something. Well, Sue, I think what you said is pretty brilliant. Uh, And I think it's interesting. Um, I think it's brilliant because it's so critical to recognize the patterns of how God has been faithful and worked with us, right? I think that that's the foundation for how we keep going and how we keep walking and pursuing, you know, in this case, in sort of my area of discussion, meaningful work. And the other reason why I think it's it's brilliant and provocative is because many people are wired very differently than the way you just described. Mm-hmm. Many people experience change as really difficult, really unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll use, I'm not a mental health professional, but even traumatizing. And so there's all this resistance that comes, right, as a as a result of that change. And, and that's where I, I'll go back, go back to the stories of the disciples. I, one of the reasons why I love the, the simple invitation to follow me is because it necessitates this step-by-step thing right? Walking step by step. And for those of, I'm, I'm with you. I like change. I'm an entrepreneur. I like, the, I like the new stuff. But for those of us that change is scary, it helps to break it down into what might the next thing God be calling you to be? But just one little risk, one little relationship, one little idea so that we're not, not always talking about big, scary changes that can, for some people, be uh, so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So true. Um, I've even called my mentor, especially when my kids were little, and I would be asked to do something in ministry. And I'd say, should I do this? Mm. And she said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But if it's investing in people or the word, then you can't go wrong. Because mm. they both last forever. And wow. then she also says, trust God and do the next thing, which is a lot of people attribute that 
phrase to Elizabeth Elliot, but I read it in the biography of Oswald Chambers, who wrote My Utmost mm. Forest Highest. So I could be misremembering, but it doesn't matter. It's a great line. And of course, it's from the Psalms where you, you know, um, just do, you trust God in the land and you do the next thing. <laughs> and right. so well, we're not really talking about God's guidance here, but we are because people work is meaningful. And I, I are can be devastating actually, but I think what you're seeing can be particularly helpful to moms. Mm-hmm. And I don't just say that because I am a mom, but I remember when I got pregnant for the first time, my little sister who'd been married since you know birth practically and already had children said, Sue, finally you're what you're saying to women will be legitimatized because they are in the throes of being moms of young children. That's where you're at. And all of a sudden you feel like, well, what am I doing today that's actually meaningful or matters to the next generation even because I'm just really trying hard to scrape the Cheerios off the floor or my kids keep fighting or, you know, my, my daughter was nice until she was nine. I mean, I remember the day when she was first (laughs) mean to her sister and, um, and I thought, Oh, I failed as a mother. You Mm. know, there's all these things because women today are, I mean, my mother didn't go to college and she always felt all five of us were going to go to college and she felt less than, and I think society can put less than, especially on women, unless they reach a certain salary or a level in a company. But you, as one um, coach told me once, she goes, you can do all the things, but not all at the same time. Yeah. And not all at the same time well, right? Exactly. I mean, this is a question, Sue. I think what you're bringing up is is really important to, first of all, Cheerios. I quite literally scraped Cheerios <laughs> off of the table this morning after my two-year-old son. So that's a very relevant and real-life <laughs> example. Uh, I, but I'm thinking about two things. Right now, my daughter, she has transitioned into kindergarten. And I was talking with my mom the other day. I've got a book coming out and life is more full than I, in a different way, it is denser than I have ever experienced professionally because of this book. I'm very grateful for that. And I was talking to my mom and she's like, what, what do you, what, what feels most important right now? What do you, what do you, what are you really investing in? And I said, you know, in my kid, like she's, she's making a transition to kindergarten. That is one of the biggest transitions that she's going to make. Mm-hmm. And so we have carved out all of this extra time just to talk about morning bins and snack time and, you know, so-and-so on the playground. And um, I, I don't, it's, this is not a, this work is more important than this work, but it, it is, you're bringing light to the, the reality that there are these overlapping spheres of influence that we have. And this is where I go back to Max Dupree. How do we live seamlessly? How do we live seamlessly in those spheres of influence? And the last thing I'll say is I have a very good friend. We went to college and she's a, she's right about to have her fourth kid. By the time, by the time she hears this, she will ha- have had her fourth kid. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm Michaela, I really want to, I really want to read your book as my nursing book. I was like, Oh, you <laughs> yeah. need, you need like fiction or something. Yeah. Let's get you a good TV show. Yeah. And she said, no, Michaela, I need to be reminded that what I'm doing right there is meaningful work. And that is right where God has me. So that is why I'm going to read this book as my nursing book. Mm, I love that. And that 
Sue, that, that did something for me. I thought, yeah, yeah, she, she might, maybe you should author the next one, friend of mine. Um, but they're, they're just, so you're talking about that seamlessness and uplifting the good and holy work that has historically not always been uplifted, uh, you know, the work of women. Right. And, and really, I feel sorry for men because they don't get to do what we do rather right. than going, oh, I feel sorry for myself. Though I do recall because I was in a career in so long and before having children, I did feel, I remember nursing Bonnie late at night and looking up on the shelf. I had these cute little shelves to decorate her nursery. Mm. And I thought, Lord, I'm up on that shelf now. I'm just on a shelf metaphorically mm. where you can't, mm. you know, I can't do anything else. I wasn't sleeping well. So when you don't sleep well, you really can't do anything. And, um, and that's how I felt. Yeah. And to know that even that's just a season and, you know, to have someone speak, an older woman speak into your life, you're like your dear mother. And, and that this book will speak into men, men's lives as well. But as a woman, I can't wait to read it myself because we want our lives to matter. And everything yeah. we do is work. We may not get paid for it. I mean, I used to, when I started working part-time, I'd come home and my husband go, well, did you work today? I go, excuse me? <laughs> I didn't work. Oh my goodness. I said, I didn't work. He didn't mean to be patronizing. Right, of course, he, of course. He's a very black and He just meant, did yeah. I get in the car and go somewhere? And, you know, and, um, and as my friend said, tell Mark that his money is your money and your money is your money. But she goes, I never said that. Oh, yes, you did. But anyway, the thing was, I go, I work every day. I just don't get paid mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'd, I'd like a raise. That's what I told mm -hmm. him. But yes. obviously, we've worked it out. Um, good. Yeah, that's good. So why did you feel the leading to write this book? And I'm going to repeat the title because it's a beautiful one. Make Work Matter, Your Guide. So it's a guide. Is there like yeah. a workbook to meaningful work in a changing world? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I call it a guide because at the end of every chapter, there's exercises. Mm. And the exercises are not just things that I made up in my head and put in this book. They are things that have been road tested many, oh. many times. Yeah. So in my work at the Max Dupree Center for Leadership, uh, you know, I'm building out resources and cohorts and other kinds of learning environment and workshops and everything that's in this book has been, um, yeah, it's been, it's been road tested in those spaces. And it's been those spaces that actually motivated me to write the book. There are a lot of people who are kind of part grief, part hope about their work, who are a lot of, you know, ah, I've got some things that have went well and I don't know what to do next, right? Or gosh, things used to be more clear. And now that I'm juggling so much, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed and that there's a lot of people, the, the data says uh, that people undergo major life changes every 12 to 18 months now. That's just the rate of change in our world. Wow. And I know, I know, it's overwhelming. And in the midst of that, we need spaces and tools to stop, to pause, to be transformed, to reflect, to talk to one another, to talk to God. And this book really is space to do that. Mm. Um, I, I can't tell you how many people who, who have gotten early copies who are writing me and saying, one person, I had to read this really slow because I kept having to go journal about that. Or, 
I, I, I want to, I need to get a copy for me and my husband so we can kind of both work through it. Or that story you told in, in about this person that happened to me too. And hmm. I think that there's something significant about being able to find ourselves in a book and that becomes reflective space. It becomes space where God speaks to us. And so it's for all those reasons and out of all those conversations that I wrote, wrote the book. Hmm. So it's full of stories too, not just full. data. Full of stories. It's a lot of my own story. It's a lot of my own vulnerable story. People are like, oh my goodness, you're so vulnerable here. And I'm like, well, I think that's, I, and actually to talk a little bit about the gendered thing, I think that's different than of the, of the books we get on work, right? The, different than the books we get on leadership and business. Those are all really great. And I read a lot of those. I'm not complaining or talking down about any of them, but there's something about the way that, and this is not exclusive to women, but there's something about the way that women talk and they lead like empathy and vulnerability forward. And again, not exclusively and not, um, not all the time, but there you, you will see that, that tone mm. in there. As well. Mm. well, I'm excited because I read stories better than data. I have a question for you that I thought about when yes. I was thinking about getting to talk to you today. If someone feels that their work doesn't matter, whether or not they're a mm. stay-at-home mom or a professional out in the workforce, blue collar or whatever, do they need to change their job or do they need to change their perspective about their job? That's a great question. I mean, it's so contextual, right? It might be, might be yes, I think is my answer. <laughs> yes. But I'm actually going to go back to a story that you told here. So, you know, you, you called up your mentor and you said, should I do this? Right? You got this question, this discernment question, this guidance question, which is right. basically the, the same question we ask. And I think that there are so many times when it's hard to get out of our own head and really sort through the options. And so if there's somebody wrestling with, okay, my work doesn't feel meaningful. Do I need to have a different perspective or do I need to change jobs? I would say, start talking to people that you trust about that. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, one last thing here. I, I'm thinking about first Samuel and I'm thinking about the boy Samuel who's woken up in the middle of the night. He thinks by Eli calling his name, he runs to him and he's like, Hey, what's up? What do you need? Eli's like, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. He goes back to sleep. He hears his name again. Eli's like, I didn't call you. And finally Eli realizes like, Oh, you're hearing the voice of God. Mm -hmm. We need other people to teach us how to hear the voice of God. I think sometimes we think that's born. Um, and for some of us, it might be, but for many of us got to cultivate that. So if you've got those questions, start getting with people in your life who might be good conversation partners to help you hear the voice of God. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, Chambers said that all the questions of life could be answered in the phrase, come unto me, but mm. we don't hear God's come unto me unless we take that time to reflect yeah. to journal, and also just to be quiet. Yeah. Uh, and to have that space is difficult, depending on where you are in life, but to make that a priority so that when you hear all the different uh, voices that you can discern which one is God calling you to do. Is he calling you to change your job? Is he calling mm -hmm. you to leave your state? I just interviewed De uh, Jennifer Dukes Lee. And so she and her husband are both in professions and they went back to the farm in Iowa. So wow. she's written this book, Grow Slow, <laughs> because mm, yeah. on the harvest. And it was a big, big, big change and kind of scary. And mm -hmm. uh, just because something's scary, it doesn't mean it's a no from God. 
because there's lots right. of scary things that God called people to in scripture, but we just hold on to him tighter. And maybe that's the real thing that we needed to learn that mm-hmm. we hold on to him tighter and that he can mm-hmm. be trusted. Now, you know, my um, podcast is about legacy and yeah. uh, I could probably tell you what I think your legacy is, but I want to hear you say it. What do you think your legacy is that you want to make sure that you're leaving for those who love you and who live around you? I think it's a fantastic question. I I, I just love this question, Sue. When I think about my legacy, first of all, I think it's unfolding, right? Then I think that there's just a nature of it unfolding. But I really want to invest in people, kind mm-hmm. of like your mentor said. Like if there's an opportunity to invest in people and help them become their best selves and help them realize that they they really do matter who they are matters and what they do matters and and that requires a lot of sitting with people in tough stuff and empathizing with them but also helping them imagine what might be and take risks for the path forward so that's what i hope my legacy is mm-hmm. um how are you currently doing that well i think a lot of how i'm doing that is in some of the basics. So as a mom and a friend, right. As a wife and as a daughter, and then also in, in, honestly, in the book that I just wrote, this feels, this feels like an opportunity for me to invest in people, to remind them that they matter, to invite them into their own empathy and imagination and risk. Um, And I, I hope that's what it's doing. And my brother, to encourage you, my brother, Steve, um, writes poetry Mm. as well as well as music and he said sue keep writing because because i get discouraged and he goes keep writing because the written word will last when you speak they'll remember maybe five minutes i go thanks a lot but that's true (laughs) i don't remember when other people speak unless i've written something down that they've said Mm. and um and he said so it's an, an enduring value And so um, God has led you, Michaela, I want to encourage you that this is an ongoing, yes, our our legacies are unfolding, but we don't know how much time we have. And God gave you that story to write and you were vulnerable, you were obedient, and that is part of your legacy. And you can rest in that if you never write another word. So praise Mm -hmm. the Lord for that. Um, what changes did you have to make or obstacles to overcome to work on this legacy of helping people feel like they matter? Yeah, so I'm a very goal-driven, like when I do the strengths finders and things like that, mm-hmm. strategic is number one. Mm-hmm. So I want what I envision to happen right away. And this work is sewing work. It's it's, you know, it, it's watering, intending, and it follows kind of that farming metaphor. And there is fruit and I see it, but I've had to alter my expectations and, and grow in trust in the depth of this work, mm-hmm. in addition to the big vision and, and sort of grand reach aspects that my mind kind of gravitates towards. And you know what, Sue, that has been honestly a holy reckoning for me. I love, mm. I love getting to be deep with people in this way. And I still have to kind of adjust expectations sometimes for myself. Um, but it's, I'm glad God's got me on this journey. So by holy reckoning, the fact that you have to wait for the fruit, is that what you meant? Yeah. I want to like imagine it and have it right now, have it right there. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> yeah. Where I think we're all 
a little bit that way. The same mentor says, Sue, God is never in a hurry. We're the ones with fast watches. Mm, <laughs> That's mm. a good one, huh? Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> what wisdom would you like to leave with my audience today? Well, I think that the work, uh, honestly, the meaningful work often starts not necessarily with what can I fix about myself or what might I do differently. And sometimes it's not even what is God saying to me? I think a lot of times it starts with moving toward one another. Um, when I did all the research that stacked up into this book, one of the things that was very striking to me is that people were really make, that were really making a difference practiced a lot of empathy, a lot of empathy. And so my advice would be, how might you be interruptible today by the people who are, who are to the left and to the right of you? Some of us are, are more wired for empathy than others, and I think, you know, and culturally conditioned for it. But I would say that empathy is a superpower. If you've got it, lean into it and leverage it. And if you don't have it, you too can grow um, like I have along the way. How would you define empathy? You know, I, I have a vision of it. So there's a lot of like, you know, kind of data on this, but I really, the, the picture of the Good Samaritan is what comes to mind. Somebody who can, mm. is already going from point A to point B, but can move out of their own route toward another person and say, I see you, I feel you, I'm here with you. Let's go together forward. Mm. And so it's that vision of the Good Samaritan that fills out my picture of what empathy is. And for someone who's uh, strategically motivated as yourself, um, I think that takes some hard intentionality to obey God because we get interrupted and we go, wait a minute, my to-do list uh didn't get finished. And when some God brings someone into our life, I mean, I'm I'm starting to design some to-do lists notepads and one is going to mm. be called about my father's business mm. and then whatever is there you're doing it for the father so whether mm. it's someone's interrupted you 14 times that day or an un, or you see an ambulance go down your street because you're outside talking and you see what house it stops in and then what can you make to take to that mm. poor man whose wife just was whisked off and he he couldn't visit her because of COVID. So those right. are interruptions, but they're, as someone wisely said years ago, that our interruptions are God's appointments and to have yeah. that perspective, but still finish something. <laughs> oh, this wise, another wise woman in my church came for coffee the other day. This is a good thing too, is to have wise people around you, like you said earlier, so that they're pouring into your life. And she said, Sue, I like to tell young moms if they could just do one thing that they could finish one thing for the day. It just makes you feel so much better. Even mm, if it's yeah. just so do a very short thing. Like, yep. hey, I got those Cheerios off. Yep. That's it. You yep. know, because you don't know what's around the, the corner. Well, you have been a delight, Michaela. I can't wait to give away your book and to read one for myself. And is there a way that people can connect with you? Yes, I'm very excited um, for the Dupree Center to give away a couple copies of this book to your mm-hmm. listeners. Yeah, and and in the meantime, um, Dupree.org really is the best place to find me. That's okay. D-E-P-R-E-E dot org. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Your blessing. Thank you. Hang in there with the Cheerios. Until yes. next time, think about your legacy, the one God has called you to live, all for heaven's sake. I would love to speak at your next Christian Women's event. 
See my keynotes and retreat series as well as the show notes from today's broadcast at welcomeheart.com. Thanks for coming. You're always welcome here.